The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 4. Uh, we'll continue in our series, Do Something, as we walk verse by verse through this book together. Uh, thank you, Ethan, and for those who led us to sing the gospel this morning. We are singing what is true, what is true in God's plan to redeem a people to Himself. And uh, you see that as we walk through those verses. They just tell the story of the gospel, and we are doing that intentionally. We don't want you to just be singing songs that make you feel good or that take you back. We want you to sing songs that, that rehearse what is true of God, that allow your, your heart to spring forth with what you've received in His grace. And so we want to remind you of the gospel as we sing together, and I I thank Ethan for doing that. I'm so thankful for his faithfulness uh, week in and week out uh, to lead us to sing about God, sing to God, sing the gospel together. Aren't you thankful for Ethan's faithfulness? Amen. Well, we'll be in James chapter 4 this morning uh, as we look at why churches fight. Now, we don't have to go very far this morning to look at fighting in the culture. Um, this, over the last couple of weeks or so, we have been uh, just bombarded with all that is going on in Ferguson, with all the fighting that's going on there. And um, you can, we don't know all the facts. We don't know all of what transpired, but uh, uh, this young man was shot by the police. He was unarmed, uh, twice in the head, four times in the forearm, and uh, And there was an entire community that responded in outrage, um, feeling, again, slighted that there is racism and and all of these things going on. And we don't know all the facts. We can't can't come to any premature judgment one way or the other. But we do know that, um, that all along the way, there were steps of um, anger, and there were steps of wrath and there were steps of violence taken by those who really probably at one point or another didn't have the right to do so. We look at those protesting uh, what they are calling injustice, and, and, uh, and if it truly is injustice, then uh, we should be angry about that. But to protest injustice with things like Molotov cocktails and, uh, and, and looting and violence is, is another injustice in itself. So to commit one injustice, to protest another injustice, what's, what's right about that? We look at our culture and we see fighting all around us. Every now and then it, it spills over when someone has a fender bender and two parties get out of their cars and rather than handling this thing with civil heads, it, it, it spills over and they exchange blows on the side of the road. Or one person pulls out a gun and shoots the other. You see this at Little League ball games where there's a call that doesn't go quite the way that, that a dad thinks it should go, and all of a sudden that dad has gone from a fan of his son in, in the stands to now he is a, a, a um, purveyor of justice on the field, and he has now got some umpire or some other coach by the throat, and he's choking him. We see this all in our culture all around us, and, and while it doesn't happen that way all the time, we see it spill out, this wrath and anger and fighting. And, and to some degree, if we're honest as believers, it, to some degree it makes sense to see it in the world. But it never makes sense to see it in the church. 
those who claim to know the joy and the peace of Christ, for them to fight among one another makes no sense. And it is confusing, at the very least, to a world watching. They, they hear us claim this peace that comes from knowing Christ, and yet we oftentimes fight with one another and treat one another. James has just told us about this when he talked about the tongue, that with one, in one instant with our tongues we are praising our, our Lord and our Father, and another instant we are using that same tongue to curse someone who's made in His image. And this should never be. And James is going to talk about this issue of why churches fight. And I want to walk through this passage today, and I want to show you why churches fight. That it begins with a war within, that then spills over to battles without. And then I want to show you at the end what James offers as the way to peace. So let's read this together, and we'll dive into the text. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This morning, what's all too common in our culture, particularly in the South, is exactly what James is having to deal with here today, a fighting church. Uh, If you've had any history, any background with the church at all, uh, particularly in the South, you've probably come out of some experience of a fighting church. You can drive through the countryside and, uh, and you can see churches with, unfortunately, names like New Fellowship Baptist Church Number 2. And, and uh, that's sad on multiple accounts because at one point it implies that there was a Fellowship Baptist Church that then split and became a New Fellowship Baptist Church that then split and became a New Fellowship Baptist Church Number 2. And unfortunately, it's probably not the finality of the splitting and the launching of new churches out of that, that one. This is a reality, a fighting church. Uh, some churches have the, the reputation for being pastor killers. Pastors don't stay more than, more than a couple of years or so. They come in, they labor hard, and, and yes, pastors will make mistakes, but they labor hard with good intentions in most cases. Wanting, to, wanting the gospel to be clear and wanting the, the community to be reached, wanting the church to be built up in health. And oftentimes churches have a reputation for killing those pastors. Many of those pastors uh, wind up leaving the ministry altogether or going to some bivocational status and then eventually maybe, maybe many of them dropping out of the ministry altogether. Uh, we, we have pulled away from leading the nation in this statistic, but it was only a couple of years ago that in the South Carolina Baptist Convention, we led the nation in pastor suicides. This is something that should not be, and James here is talking about this very issue. He's dealing with talking to a church that has been scattered in the region, and they are forming these various small pockets of believers, the church of Jerusalem scattered out in the region. And he says, what causes these fights and these quarrels among you? And some people often say, well, you know, we just need to get back to the, the early church. We should get back to being just like the early church, the, the first century church. Well, the reality is the first century church was dealing with some of the same things that we deal with today. Where you have sinners and you put them together, you will have problems. 
you will have conflict. And, and James says, what are causing these quarrels and these fights among you? Now, let me right off the bat say, James is not saying that there are not some things that we should fight about, that we shouldn't fight about. He's saying that, that there are some things that, that are worth us fighting for. Not that we should fight about them, but we should fight for them. We should fight for truth. We should fight for doctrine. We should fight for justice. But oftentimes the, the fights that, uh, that characterize these churches that come up with things, names like New Fellowship Baptist Church number two or number three or number four or how many, oftentimes their, their fights are not over these serious things that are worth fighting for. Instead, they are over things like the color of the carpet or the songs that were sang or something was removed from the building and my mom or my grandmother gave that. Or, I mean, it's just, in some cases, so many silly things. And James is going to show us here that there are some things that are worth fighting for, but there are some things that are not. If you ask this question to those that are in a fighting church, that there's a fight going on in the middle of the church, and, and listen, let me just take a time out as well. I was so thankful this week as I studied this passage to not have to come and apply this to a church that is fighting. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that we are at peace with one another and that, that God's doing a work of health and glorifying His name here? That is a great thing. I was so thankful that I don't have to come and say, now listen, this one hits pretty close to home because this is not going on here by the grace of God. But if you ask the average church member in a fighting church, what's causing the fights and quarrels among you? What are they going to say? Well, they are, right? Well, well they, if, if they would just, and you go over there and you talk to them and you say, well, what's causing these fights and quarrels? And they would say, well, well they are. And I've literally been in, in, in sanctuaries where the, the congregation was divided down the middle. And on one side of the sanctuary sat this group, and on the other side of the sanctuary sat this group, and it ought not to be. If we're ever going to get anywhere, we've got to, got to come to grips with this reality that we are sinful people put together around this common denominator that we have been forgiven, saved, plucked out of wrath, pulled away from our hellbound race by Christ and Christ alone. And we've got to understand that we are sinners. And when you put us together, we will at times have conflict. We won't always see eye to eye or, or agree with one another. But let us always be a people that chooses to put down those things that don't matter in deference to our brother or sister if it would make him grow in his faith and that Christ would be honored and glorified. So James points to, when he asks this question rhetorically to them in a letter, he then answers his own question and he says, is it not, is the reason for these arguments, these quarrels, these fights among you, is it not that your passions are at war within you? So James first off begins to point to this war within. Passions here is the word hedone. It's, it's a word that means desires, particularly self-centered desires. Uh, if you want to go down even further and drill down even a little more, it's a word that means pleasure pleasures. When he says, are not your pleasures are at war with, within you. 
Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, said when, when James here is talking about these passions, these pleasures that are at war within them, he's talking about those things that are most urgent, even those things that are, that are most primal. And, and there was a time when this would not have been an issue, but because our hearts are tainted with sin, those things that are often most primal to us and most urgent to us are less than godly things. Wouldn't you say that's true? Don't you get sidetracked and distracted with some things that you think are so important sometimes? In reality, they're just not that important. I stood in my foyer. I'll just be transparent and honest with you. I stood in my foyer the other day and I yelled at my son because I felt I was being disrespected. Now, did that yelling at my son cause him to want to respect me all the more? Or did it cause him to lose that much more respect for me? In a moment, what I thought was most important, most urgent, what was most primal, was really not that important at all. Yes, I need to teach him to be obedient. And yes, I need to teach him to respect authority because as he respects me, he's doing so as unto the Lord. But there is a way that we handle things that often comes out that reveals this war within us. Now, James here talks about pleasure. These pleasures are at war in you. Does this mean that all pleasure is wrong? Well, absolutely not. Everything that you and I enjoy today has been given to us by a God who created pleasure. Now, some things are taken to a sinful level. All things, all, all things that become evil pleasures are a good pleasure gone bad. We've corrupted them with sin. Well, let me give you some examples. Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme evil? <laughs> yeah, yeah, in some cases, yeah, maybe. You know, that hot now sign comes on, that's the temptation of, of Satan. That's just like a direct line from hell, you know, just, you know, hot now, pull in there, right? Is Krispy Kreme really evil? No. We can enjoy that as a common grace from God, this Warm, <laughs> yeasty piece of bread covered in sugary goodness from heaven. I mean, it's, it's good, right? But I can enjoy that in a, in a sinful, evil way, can I? When I go by there hot now, I'll have two dozen. Who are you taking those, you taking those home to the family? They won't make it, right? <laughs> I mean, I can, I can take that to a sinful level. What God has given us as a common grace. I mean, who created the taste buds anyway? God did. But we can take anything and we can make it sinful. Football. Football's getting ready to come up. Some of you say, oh, wait, don't, don't touch football. I'm a football fan as well. I mean, we, we can take football to a sinful level. I can enjoy this and I can, I can look at this game that is, that is creative and, and that is that is. Best game on the planet. And I can say, God, thank you for this game. Or I can take it to a sinful level where it consumes my every thought. And I know every statistic of every player on my team and all the other teams that are in our conference. And, and I, can, I, I know it all, but yet I know no Scripture. And it has become idolatrous to me. Domesticated animals, a.k.a. pets, right? Now I'm really treading on thin ice, right? You mess with people's pets and you're really messing with things. But, but 
I can, I can say to you that, that pets are wonderful. God has given pets to be a, a, an enjoyment and a comfort and a companion to us. I love animals. I've had animals all my life. Uh, first dog I ever remember having was a dog named Blondie. Little thing we got at the, at the animal shelter, just a mutt, and wouldn't let anybody get close to her except for me and my family. You'd come close to her, and she would show you those teeth. And she was only about, you know, this big, but she was mean unless she knew us, and then she loved us. And I can remember sitting out there on that porch in my childhood years as, as a you know, four, five, six, seven-year-old kid until she, until she passed away. And, and I can remember talking to Blondie when nobody else would, would be around to listen to me. And I would rub Blondie's ears, and she would just, you know. <laughs> I used to think, she loves me, you know. Look, pets can be wonderful, but we can take pets to a sinful level, can't we? We can enjoy pets, but then we can take them to a level where we begin to value their life over and above the lives of those who have been made in the image of God. We look at things like sex, sex between a husband and a wife. We, we often hear in church, sex is dirty, or we say things like sex is for procreation. But the reality is God made an, an, a pleasure element to sex as well. Sex is to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. Any of these things, you can list it all. If I were to poll the crowd, the, the audience today, and I, I would say, uh, what, what is it that you find pleasure in? I could say to you, I could probably get back to a root of something that was given by God. It's a common grace. But if you take it too far, it becomes a sinful, at war within you kind of passion. Passions are at war within us in, in at least two ways. The first way James, James gives us here in this passage, uh, the the, the our, our passions, our pleasures are at war within, within the believer in the element of, or in the, uh, the manner of the flesh wars against the spirit. For the believer, Paul knew all about this. We, we come to Christ, we love Christ, our affections have been changed, but we still don't love him the way that we wish we did, right? Don't you find yourself at times saying, oh, I cannot believe I fell for that again. I can't believe I went there again. I wish... My heart was fully devoted to God. Don't you find yourself saying that? Paul knew this when he talked about the things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. Listen to, to Paul in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the, Lord, the, the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, Paul knew exactly what you and I experience on a day-to-day -day basis that we want to love the Lord and we've been given affection as believers filled with the Spirit to love Him and to love what is good, to want to be pleasing to Him, but oftentimes we fall prey to the flesh that still resides within these members that one day we will be set free from. These, our bodies will be transformed and fit for His presence forever, but until then we will always struggle with not loving Him the way we wish we did. 
When Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, I don't know about you, but I can identify with that. I wish I loved him more. Second way that our passions or our pleasures are at war within us are not just this, the residual flesh against the spirit within us, but it's in this area of what I want versus what they want. You see this when you look at the church. When you look at churches that fight, oftentimes it's, it comes down to someone saying, I want what I want. And someone else saying, what I want, what I want. And we see this. We see a great picture of this. When David was out on his balcony and, he, balcony and he looked over onto the rooftop of an adjoining building and he saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, bathing there. And as the man after God's own heart, in that moment, I have to think that there was a moment where he said, this is not right, this is not, I shouldn't, shouldn't be looking at this, I should turn and I should go. But in his flesh, he lingered. And he looked. And before long, he sent for her. And the Bible says that he lay with her, that, uh, that she wound up becoming pregnant, and, and, uh, and now he has a problem on his hands. Uriah is out fighting the battles of the king, and Uriah is not there, and so he knows everyone will have questions. And so David comes up with a plan. He sends for Uriah and says, bring Uriah home. Let him spend the night there at his, his house. Let him be reunited with his wife, and this will resolve itself. But Uriah's heart was so loyal to the king that he wouldn't go spend the night there in his own home with his wife. Instead, he slept at the king's door. And David thought, well, this, this has got to change. He's, he's a strong man. I, I admire his commitment, but he, he's not a perfect man, so I will do this. I will throw a banquet for him, and I will get him drunk. And then I will send him home to his wife, and he will, he will spend the night there. Uriah said, I will have no such thing, and he slept outside the king's door. When David finally saw that he was never going to get anywhere because of the loyalty of Uriah's heart, David, the man after God's own heart, sent Uriah back to the battle with a note that essentially was Uriah's own death warrant. Uriah took that sealed letter to the commander, and the letter read, When the battle begins to get hot... I want you to pull everyone back and leave Uriah exposed. And David plotted the very murder of Uriah. See, David's murdering, his, his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah is exactly what James here is talking about. It's, I want what I want. It doesn't matter what, is, what, what belongs to you or what is, I want what I want. And James tells us that this is a passion that is at war, this pleasure that is at war within us. This takes the form, he's going to tell us, of, uh, number one, unmet expectations. He says there in verse 2, you desire and you do not have. This is what David experienced. You desire, but you don't have. She's not yours, David. Bathsheba doesn't belong to you. She belongs to Uriah. But David said, but I want her. And oftentimes what causes fights in the middle of God's people in churches comes down to this very thing. It's unmet expectations. 
It's unmet expectations. It is, it is unobtainable desires. James here says, um, you desire and you do not have. You covet and you cannot obtain. Church, we've got to, and I'm going to say this again at the end, but I want you to hear me now. We've got to realize and be very aware that we are people that are just like David. David was never meant to be the hero of the Bible. We oftentimes paint David to be the hero, but David was a sinner in need of rescue just like you and I. And sometimes we read stories about David and Goliath and how he took that stone and he, he flung it from that sling and it sunk deep into the giant's head. And see, David, if the little guy can do it, then I can do it too. All things are possible with Christ, right? But the reality is the point of that story is not David. The point of that story was Jesus who would ultimately come and conquer and slay death once and for all. David needed a Savior, and you and I need a Savior. And as we live and function together in this congregation, as you grow, as we grow together, maybe one day you'll, you'll be called away for business or, or something else, and you'll have to move, and you'll have to find another church. One of the things that should always be on the forefront of our minds is it's not everybody else that has the problem. It's me too. I am prone to evil. I am prone to want what I want. I am prone to be frustrated when I don't get what I want. I am, pre- I am prone to covet. We, we sometimes look at the Ten Commandments, and we read all these Ten Commandments, and we say, thou shalt not murder. That should be in there. Don't commit adultery. Got that? That should be in there. But we come to the, uh, one of the, the commandments that says, do not covet. And we say, eh, that's kind of weak. I could live with coveting. But coveting is the very thing that Paul says in Romans 7 is the one thing that showed him his own sin. James here says the reason for these fights are these unmet expectations and these unobtainable desires, these, the, the flesh that is at war within you. Church, know that that is us. When there is war going on within our individual hearts and within the church at large, then there will be, secondly, these battles without. If there's a war within, there will also be these battles without. And James here uses very strong language when he uses this word murder. In verse 2, he says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, probably he's not talking about literal physical murder. Um, Although some of the members of this congregation were former zealots, who would have thought nothing about murder before coming into Christ? And so maybe some of that carries over. And we don't know. Maybe there possibly could have been some case of murder going on. If that's the case in one of these churches, I, I think James would not have been satisf- satisfied to just say so little about it. I think he would have dealt with it more. So this is probably not talking about literal physical murder. But his point is, if we leave hostility, this war within us, if we leave this unchecked, then it can lead to these battles without that can even take the form of murder. Um, 2004 in Rome, Georgia, we moved here from Rome, Georgia. Uh, in 2004 at a church, Hollywood Baptist Church, I know it well. I can see it sitting there. Ethan knows right where it is as well. 2004, um, a woman by the name of Michelle Reynolds, mother of four, uh, married to Thad Reynolds, who was a deacon in the church. Um, worked at the, the local Frito-Lay distribution center. 
Um, he, this woman, Michelle Reynolds, began to have an affair with the youth minister, Scott Harper. Uh, he was a father of three, and, and he was the youth minister of the church. Much like the story of David and Bathsheba, this passion of wanting what they wanted, despite what was, took over. And they plotted the murder of Michelle's husband, Thad. And in 2004, Scott Reynolds, the youth minister of this church, waited outside this Frito-Lay distribution center for Thad to come out. And when he came out, he jumped him and stabbed him 19 times, leaving him for dead. You see, I get that in in the world. I, I, I get that that kind of stuff happens. That fills our news, but it should not be the case with believers. And I think what James is saying here is if we leave hostility unchecked, while this be extreme, this can be where it leads. Now, we, we, took, we look at this and we say, but probably not, probably not physical, literal murder here. James is probably more so having in mind the Sermon on the Mount. We've said over and over again that James, being the, the little brother of Jesus, having not believed in Jesus while Jesus was living, now looks back on his life and realizes he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. And so he, I think he thinks back to these times when he heard his own brother teach these things. And he, I think, has in mind here Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, where Jesus there on the mount said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Jesus said, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. James here is saying that there's this war that goes on within you. It is the flesh warring against the spirit. It's, it's your own unmet expectations, your unobtainable desires, the things that are so pleasurable to you that you take to sinful levels, these things are at war within you as a believer. He continues to call them brothers, and he says, look, if you leave these things unchecked, this is where it will lead. It's going to lead in this battle on the outside. It goes from being this emotional welling up on the inside to all of a sudden rage takes its form and it can take the form of physical, literal murder or it can take the form of us slaying one another with our words. He goes on and he says there are battles without not just murder, but he says you covet and cannot obtain, therefore you fight and you quarrel. When we don't get our way, we often fight and quarrel, don't we? Aren't we sometimes just like a three-year-old? But I want it, right? And we may not say it that way. We may not stomp our foot. But we might turn to Facebook. We might begin to slay the person on the other end. We might begin to whisper among ourselves. We might begin to try to recruit for our team and our side. We fight and we argue and we quarrel when we don't get our way. Paul told Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they only breed quarrels. Paul, Timothy's mentor, getting ready to send him off into, fa- in, into ministry as this pastor, 
knew even then that the church would be prone to quarrels and fighting. And he says, don't, don't have anything to do with these things. In James chapter 3, James has just told us all about this issue of fighting and quarreling, and he ties it back to the tongue. The things that he said about the tongue were these. He said, we all stumble in many ways. Not many of you should be teachers because we all stumble, especially in our tongues. We say things we don't mean as a result of this war within. James said it's a small member the tongue is, but it boasts of great things. The tongue is a fire, he said, a world of unrighteousness. How little a spark it takes to set an entire forest on fire. He said it sets on, on fire the entire course of life. It's set on fire by hell itself. James said no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With, with one, in one minute we bless God with our tongue, and in, in the next we are cursing someone made in His image. James knew, Paul knew, we all know from personal experience how quickly this war within us can become this battle outside. Husbands, how many times have you wished you could take back your words? Moms, how many times have you wished you could take back your words? Teenager, child, how many times have you wished you could take back your words? It starts with this war within us that winds up in these battles on the outside. James then turns and he gives the way to peace. He says in verse, the last part of verse 2 and leading into verse 3, which, by the way, the numbers in our Bibles were not put there by James. They were not put there by the writers of, of these books or these letters. They were put there after the fact to help us be able to find places within the Bible. But we have to realize that when we read through portions of Scripture, just because someone somewhere divided it at that point doesn't mean that's where the author intended it to be divided. So here, just because it goes at the very last of two, end of verse 3, don't let that lock you into how you might see things. And at the end of verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And I, I look at that and I say, you know, that's right. So many things we don't ask. And I, I thought about this. Why don't we ask? I think there's a few reasons why we don't ask God when we, as believers, have been given this incredible privilege to cast all of our cares on Him. Why don't we ask? I think a lot of times it's because we're sure that we can handle it. We're so self-confident and self-reliant that we think, I got this. Therefore, we don't ask. We don't ask because we're ashamed to ask for, for whatever we're, we're desiring. Think about it. If, if you said out loud, particularly to God, what it is that you're really wanting to see happen, oftentimes wouldn't it change what you ask for? Wouldn't you hear just how selfish you're being? Wouldn't it cause you to say, you know what, that's, that's probably not the right thing to ask. That's probably not what God would will. I mean, I, maybe you've been in the middle of some situation and, and you've thought these things like, oh, I wish they would just get their own. I wish they'd get what's coming to them. And you start to say, God, would you? Well, I probably shouldn't ask God to do that. Some things are selfish. Some things are sinful and we know it, therefore we don't ask. 
If we would take more things to God in prayer, God might just purify us in our pleasures and our desires. Some things we're ashamed to ask Him for because we think, you know, that's too trivial. I can't ask God for that. That's so small. I mean, that's just a little thing. And God's God, and He doesn't have time to deal with that. Might I remind you that, yes, God is God, and He's got all sorts of other things going. He invites you to cast all your cares on Him. He doesn't say, make a list, prioritize them, run them by a coworker, and if it passes muster, then you can bring it to me. No, God says, cast all your cares on me. We don't ask because we're sure we can handle it. We're too ashamed to ask him about it. Or number three, maybe because he hasn't answered in the past. We've prayed and we've prayed and we've thought, there's no use in praying anymore. God's not listening or this or that. And there may be a time for us to to stop because we get an answer and God says no. And for us in that moment to keep asking God for something that He has clearly said no to would be wrong on our part. But I'm also reminded of stories in Scripture where God compares prayer to a little woman who just just continues to, to harass the king with her request. And finally the king says, sure, sure. And God is not temperamental and not annoyed like this king is, but what he's trying to teach us is that there are some things that only come with persistence. There are some prayers that will not be answered in an instant. They're not oatmeal prayers. They're crockpot prayers, right? They're not these put some water in a bowl, put it in the microwave, push the 30-second button, and you got your breakfast. There are these labors of love. I look down here and I see Ralph smiling over here at me. Prayed for years for his son to come to know the Lord. And just in the last two or three years, saw his son come to know the Lord. Some things are not on your timetable, but God does not say, hey, just because I said no, you need to quit. Or, Or just because I haven't answered yet, you need to quit. God's not saying that. God is saying, trust me enough to keep praying. Trust me enough to not move out and start doing something on your own. Now, sometimes God calls us to action and activity, and James is all about that. Sometimes we do that at the cost of prayer. And it's never to be that. If God doesn't give us what we want, sometimes there's a good reason. And I'm going to get to this in a moment. I'm going to say this again as well. But sometimes we've got to understand that what we want may not be best for us. And what you think is best for for you You don't have all the answers. You can't see the end from the beginning the way God does. And God in His wisdom knows what you need. So trust Him. James says here, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This phrase here, spend it on your passions, other translations have rendered that to to spend freely. And it's the same word that's used of the prodigal son. 
When the prodigal son says to his dad, I want my inheritance. And then he goes out and he wastes his inheritance. He spends it freely on wild living. And this is the, the picture here, the same word used here. There are some things we ask for because we want them to benefit us. Nothing wrong with them benefiting us. We often benefit from the grace of God. But a prayer that, that is only meant to be spent on you and never meant to return anything to God is not really a prayer at all. It's on the same level of a wish list. When Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you, clearly he didn't have in mind a blank check. Instead, what Jesus was pointing to is that we would ask those things that are according to God's will that would ultimately bring glory to him If we get enjoyment in the process, then when, when? John Piper has done a lot in this area that the chief end of man is to to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And and, and he he changed it to say we're to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think he's right. That God gives so many things that we can enjoy, but if that enjoyment is only meant to to be spent on us, then we've missed the point. And the common grace, the things that God gives to us, the specific grace, Christ, the things that He gives to us are meant to turn our affections away from ourselves and to praise the giver of all good gifts. So let me give you some application as we're out of time today, coming out of these, these three verses. Number one is this, as, we, as we've looked at this war within, the battles that come on the outside as a result, and then the, the way to peace, this, this asking in God in prayer. Number one application is this, that we should be aware of our own tendency to pursue wrong passions. I said that earlier, I spent some time on it, but I want you to hear it again, that we're all prone to this. I, I thought about this. In some ways, when a church is fighting, it's easier to preach. Because the wolves are, in some cases, easily identified, right? But what that does in a church is is it says, hey, I know who the bad guys are. The reality is none of us are good guys. We are in the process of being made like Christ, but we're not there yet. It wasn't us that came and lived a perfectly righteous life. It wasn't us that went to the cross and died in the place of others. There's only been one that's ever done that. Remember that we have a tendency to choose to follow and pursue the wrong passions. Number two is this. We should strive for the unity of the church, not at the expense of those things that are worth fighting for, but where we can, where it is possible for us, we should do everything we can to bring unity to this body. That we should see others' needs as more important than our own. That we should be the first to serve, the first to jump in. Listen, there are kids back there every week. We are struggling right now to find workers for them. We're growing. We're seeing seeing our children's ministry grow, seeing our youth ministry grow. So great to have our college students back with us. We're seeing those college students back and, and that growing. They don't necessarily need child care. Oftentimes, they're the ones who are giving the child care. They're stepping up and volunteering. Matt, who was up here today on, on the gym bay playing, he's been all summer long serving with the North American Mission Board in West Virginia, serving churches all over West Virginia. 
He was back last Sunday. This is his second Sunday back. You know what he's doing today? He's right back there in that children's wing. He's keeping those two and three-year-olds so that you can come in here. We ought to be the first people to strive for the unity of the body by serving. That's one example. Number three is this. We need to have our desires and passions rightly defined by God. I mentioned this, and I'll just say it again. Sometimes it helps to say them out loud. We say these passions, these desires out loud to God, and sometimes He humbles us. Oftentimes, though, we we need to say them out loud to someone else. And I don't mean the way it happens most of the time where you get a group together and you talk. What I mean is you find somebody who's godly counsel, who's not afraid to tell you the truth, who's not afraid to look at you and say, look, what you're doing is you're on the verge of sinning right here. And so I cannot support you in this. Sometimes if you'll find godly counsel and say those things out loud to them, a brother or a sister will be the agent God uses to correct you. We need to measure those passions against his word. We need to ask him to purify us and our desires. And then number four is this. The fourth application, uh, and then I'm through, is, is this. We should trust God and know that if, if we ask and we do not receive, um, he's got a bigger picture in mind. We should trust him and know that what he gives is right and pure and perfect. And that, that, that's not just for the happy things, for the suffering that comes into your life. God knows that you even need that to make you like him. He'll give you what you need, so trust him. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, shouldn't pray. We should. But if, if he doesn't answer those prayers, we should trust him. We should, we should know that maybe we've asked with wrong motives. And God's withholding from us because we would simply spend this on ourselves. Possibly we should know that what we've asked for is not according to His will. Either according to something He's already revealed in in Scripture and we're asking something contrary to there, or in the big picture of His sovereignty, it's just not part of the plan. But we should trust Him either way. I want to just... Thank you for letting me be your pastor. And I want to thank you that I don't have to come here today and preach this in such a way as to specifically apply this because we are a fighting church. I thank God that we're at peace with one another. But also know that there is an enemy that would love to come in the middle of us and cause us to become divided and to war and fight within us. And the way that will happen is not, he's not going to come walking in this room and declare what he's doing. Instead, what Satan, what our enemy will do is he will attack you through the appetites in your personal life. He will attack you through these desires and these pleasures. So be on guard. Let's pray and labor for the unity of the body of Christ to his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, uh, that you are doing work in our midst. God, I thank you that you are sanctifying your people. And God, that you are building a church that is more concerned with being healthy to your glory 
reaching a lost community for your glory than a lot of tangible, visible expressions of personal desires. But God, we know that that's that's possible here. So God, by your grace, keep us close to you. Rightly define our passions. Teach us to seek the right things. God, help us to trust you and to pray. God, I pray that you'd lead us to love one another. God, I pray that you'd do it all so that your name might be great in our community and beyond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ethan's going to lead us in a time of response. Um, this is not a, just a formality in our service. We, we've built this in so that you can take what you've heard today. And if there are specific areas of application for you that, that need to be acted on right now, that you can do that. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. You don't know the hope of Christ. I'd love to talk to you. Maybe there is some division that I'm not aware of or somebody else, not a lot of people are aware of, but there's something between you and a brother or a sister in this room. Maybe you might just want to go and take them and say, can we go talk? There are rooms all over this building that you guys could just sneak out in and just talk together and things could be made right and we could have the cancer of division removed today. Reconciliation in the grace of Christ through the preaching of his word. Maybe you just want to respond, and as Ethan leads, just sing, praising God for what he's done in your life, what he's doing in your life, what he's doing here. Whatever it is that God is calling you to, respond in faith. Respond. The sermon is not complete just at you hearing. We're reminded James is the one who tells us, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Respond in faith. Let's worship Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.